Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Lo Hornbuckle. He is the CEO and founder of Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care, which is a boutique assisted living company with five locations in Dallas, along with two ground-up assisted living developments in Texas and Louisiana. So thank you so much for being on the show, Lo. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So give us a little background on yourself, uh, both personally and professionally, prior to getting involved with real estate investing. Yeah, I'm from uh, from Louisiana. Um, dog lover. Uh, I like to play a little poker from time to time, and uh, some of my other hobbies. I, I shoot long range, so you know, like thousand, fifteen hundred yards is kind of something I do for for fun. Uh, and uh, single with no kids, so you know that's nice because the company's my baby. So I get a chance to kind of spend some time there. You know, professionally before uh, you know getting into the assisted living business, um, I had a very natural transition. I ran a car dealership, so it's very natural to, you know, uh, run a car dealership and then take care of people with dementia. It's just there's no steps in between. It's just a very, very typical journey, right? So uh, yeah, I ran a car dealership for about 12 years and really learned a lot about, you know, relationship sales because um, I was mostly on the finance side of things, and so. Mm-hmm. My primary job was, you know, going to lenders and trying to convince them why certain papers should be bought, maybe even though it didn't fit in their sort of normal buying criteria, you know, get favors done, you know, build those relationships. Uh, and so that, you know, I learned a lot about you know, relationship sales, you know, because there's part of the cars that's transactional, right? You sell someone mm-hmm. a car, and, yeah. you know, you try to get them to come back in three or four years. But again, it's a transaction. But when you're talking to the same lender every day over and over and over again, it's much more of a relationship. Um and so I think that really kind of set the stage because assisted living is like that, right? You get a client in and you sort of maintain that relationship, you know, getting investors for assisted living as a relationship management business. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my professional background. My personal background is not that interesting because, you know, I don't have a bunch of, you know, a bunch of pictures of kids to hold up and my wallet to show to you, but I got a good dog. So that, that's good. <laughs> so when, uh, how did you choose real estate as your investment vehicle going from this uh, financing background you had in, uh, in car sales? Yeah. I mean, I've always been fascinated by real estate. Um, I think there's a lot of elements of real estate that really spoke to me. So I started real estate investing in 2007. So I worked at the car dealership until the end of 2013. So for about six years, I was in real estate kind of as a side gig, kind of getting educated on real estate. At one time in Shreveport, Louisiana, I think we had about 75 or 100 doors. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, the Shreveport economy is not great. So, you know, some of the reasons why real estate makes a lot of sense. I was just guilty of I was busy professional and I was investing where I could control the deal. 
Um, I think that ultimately benefited me because I learned a lot, um, you know, kind of self-managing. Um, and I don't think I could have done many of the things I could have done if I hadn't self-managed. Um, cause ultimately we are the operator of the assisted living and memory care. So where you see a lot of investors, you know, come out of California, for example, you know, they're, they're accustomed to third-party management, third-party management. And a lot of times when you're in a small town or when you're in a, you know, market where there's not a ton of talent, you, you manage things yourself. And so there's obviously some benefits that come from that. There's some headache, there's some pain or whatever, but, you know, on the other side of that is, you know, you know how to manage property, you're comfortable touring tenants, you're comfortable dealing with tenant disputes, you're comfortable, you know, in my case, you know, resolving family concerns or, you know, making certain that you're meeting expectations, things like that. Nice. Okay. So give us a little background on what your firm's current investment uh, strategy is. What are you looking for and um, what areas and markets? Yeah. So um, we kind of have two companies. I mean, I, I know we talked about Sage today. So essentially Sage Oak is the, uh, the brand and the operations company for the assisted living and memory care business, specifically that. Um, we also have a company called Goodhorn Capital. I'm the horn of, of the Goodhorn. And um, my name is always second. I never figured that out. All my companies, my name is second. I got to work on that. I might need a new manager. But regardless, uh, so we've got Goodhorn Capital. That's our, our sort of private equity type of firm. And we raise money for all types of deals. Um, we really focus heavily in the Texas market. We have a project in Louisiana and maybe some subsequent projects in Louisiana, but they're very close to the border with Texas. So we, and I'm from Louisiana. So we feel like we know that area very well. Um, you know, we really believe in focusing on need products. So we really try to focus on products that we think, um, you know, people have to have. People have to have housing, obviously, you know, the healthcare aspect of assisted living and memory care, strong believers in that. So, you know, we, we, we mostly stick into the housing play. So we'll, we'll, we'll develop or uh, flip subdivisions. Um, we've done some paper lot asset deals. We've also, um, you know, done some apartment development, uh, some build to rent townhouse communities. So right now we're really focused on housing. Um, just that assisted living and memory care is a subset of housing, right? So it's taking right. care of a specific subset of a group. So Sageoke's kind of our passion, change the world business. And then Goodhorn Capital supports Sageoke in that mission, but it also will raise money for other projects that we think kind of fit our sort of recession resistant criteria, because at the end of the day, people always need places to you know, live and work and, and play. So assistant living is, uh, is not something like a topic we've covered with much detail on the show. Are you able to explain the investment play with residential assisted living? I think um, with other, it's, it's not as, I guess it's good because it's a niche that's not as sought after or as popular, I guess, is like multifamily or some other ones where it makes perfect sense because people can kind of see that. Most people probably don't have experience with assisted living um, yet in their life. So um, yeah, let us know kind of how that works and what the investment play is that you're looking for when uh, reviewing an asset. Yeah, I think it's probably better to think about it instead of a real estate play. It'd be no different than if you bought an HVAC company, right? So mm -hmm. if you bought an HVAC company, you have to you know, have software, you have to manage people, you've got to train people, you know, and oftentimes if you buy an HVAC company, you have a warehouse, maybe you have a distribution center or whatever the case may be. Same thing with plumbing. So really it's a service business mm -hmm. that has a real estate component. Um, and so, um, you know, there's been a lot of people over the years that have kind of, you know, there's a lot of real estate investors, in my opinion, that are looking for that next thing. Um, and so there's been a lot of people that have kind of spoken about assisted living to real estate investors. I think it's kind of backwards. You know, if we're looking at a, a percentage, you know, it's an 80, 90% service business and it's a 10 or 20% real estate business. It's much more HR heavy. You know, so for example, in, in apartments, if you have a thousand doors, you might have what, 
30, 40 employees. If you have a thousand beds in assisted living, you're probably going to have 500 to 750 employees. Wow. So a very different, different kind of experience. So I don't really think it's a real estate play. Yeah. There's certainly ways to make it a real estate play. Um, the most common way to make it a real estate play is you partner with an operator. So there are plenty of operators out there that, um, you know, lease their buildings. Um, it's very common on a big institutional level. Companies like Well Tower will go in, buy buildings, build them, build them to the operator specifications, lease them to the operator on a triple net basis and the operator, you know, retains whatever's left over uh, after expenses from, from collecting rents, uh, rents from clients. So it, it definitely can be a real estate play. Um, that's not the way we do it. We own and operate. So um, we love the real estate tax advantages. We obviously want to control the real estate. We want to design the real estate to kind of beat our, our purposes. We, we don't do assisted living and memory care this in, in a traditional way. We have kind of a niche play that we like to do on it. And that's really kind of our signature. Uh, we don't really deviate from that in any way. So we don't buy existing facilities. We develop our signature product um, because we believe it's the uh, superior product and superior way to deliver uh, care to people that, you know, are so vulnerable, right? We're talking people yeah. with dementia that, that can't be their own advocate. You know, people that are needing assisted living often have mobility problems. Sometimes they're, they're vulnerable to have, you know, medical conditions like, you know, congestive heart failure, or kidney failure, or, things of that nature. And so, um, you know, because of that, um, you know, we, we really, we think the building is, is an extension of operations. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, there's definitely a real estate play to be made, but, but frankly, you know, when real estate investors, what asked me, what's the best way to get in the business? My answer is always invest passively with someone that knows yeah. what they're doing. Um, you know, and it's just, it's just too operationally heavy, you know? And I think, um, what you realize is, is there's a lot of, you know, there's obviously a lot of multifamily investors that are their own operators, um, there's quite a few, if the property manager has a problem or an issue, they have no idea how to fill a building, right? Policy procedure, you know, what to look for to hire a maintenance guy. For me, that's very scary. Um, I never want to be investing in something that I don't think that I could personally or with my team go in and solve the problem. Um, I don't want to be relying on a third party. That's definitely not going to care as much about, you know, what we're doing as, uh, as we would. So we really do believe in in-house operations when possible. Um, you know, I don't necessarily know that has to be the case in, in businesses that aren't operationally intensive. You know, obviously, I think there's a lot of mom and pop people that run storage facilities very well. Obviously, industrial, some triple net stuff is, is certainly capable of being done that way. But in general, I think the more operationally intensive the business, the more you want to operate it in-house mm. um, because you can have quality control, you know, things like that. So the management is handled all by your your operating company that uh, kind of manages everything. So you take care of everything. You take care of hiring people in the facility. Um, you're taking care of uh, having new clients, you know, move into the facility. So all aspects are handled by uh, by a company that you own. So yeah. So the only thing that we don't do in house is we don't do architectural and engineering in house, and we don't do building in house. Mm -hmm. um, but we do capital raising in house. So Goodhorn is kind of our capital raising arm. Mm -hmm. We do design uh, and development in house uh, through a, a Goodhorn product, uh, Goodhorn Land Holdings. And then uh, once it gets operational, then and Sage Oak, of course is involved in the design process, and then Sage Oak takes over operations. So we hire a general contractor to build our product. We have had uh, partners as general contractors on deals so that we kind of had the effect, the effect of having it in-house. But uh, we're in the process now of kind of transitioning into, you know, looking at uh, HUD product. Um, so there's a similar to multifamily, there's a, a great HUD product for assisted living and memory care. And uh, so once you become a HUD operator and you find a HUD builder, uh, you're, you're kind of off to the races because one of the, one of the worst things about development 
sorry, if you hear my dog in the background, she gets very excited about HUD financing. So she's, she's a smart dog. You know, the nice thing about HUD is you don't have sort of some of the same personal recourse rules. You know, anytime you develop something, you know, in your early stages of developer, you're kind of all in on every deal. You know, there are some non-recourse products. They're not widely common, but the vast majority of development products, projects that you do initially, the developer's often all in, right? They're putting up their net worth every time. Like I'm betting on this, I'm betting on this, I'm betting on this. Is why developers often, you know, have incredible, uh, you know, incredible success when, when they are successful is, is because they're taking, you know, big risks, you know? So, um, so we're in the process of kind of moving toward that, that kind of HUD product. But to answer your question, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of people that shouldn't be, you know, there are a lot of people that shouldn't be landlords. Um, there's yeah. even more that shouldn't take care of people with, with uh, dementia and mobility impairment. Um, you know, you can't be solely profit driven. Um, you have to have a, a greater mission or a greater cause on what you're trying to do. Otherwise, you're, you're eventually over a long timeline and get exposed by the marketplace. You know, nobody wants to have their mom or dad taken care of uh, by somebody that's only focused on the bottom line, because if you're focused on the bottom line, you can, you know, serve crappy food for a period of time. You can cut staffing, you know, yeah, sure. Falls go up and, you know, whatever, but that's just a bad mentality. So you really got to be focused on quality and quality control. And then, and then obviously hope the market pays you for your quality product. So what type of uh, returns can passive investors expect with, uh, or investors in general expect with assisted living properties? Yeah. So, I mean, it's going to vary widely. I mean, obviously you have it since we're, you know, so, I mean, there's, there's plenty of awesome existing projects that are value add plays. You know, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of uh, assisted living and memory care facilities that could be upgraded. That's not the business that we're in since we're in the development side of the business. A lot of times we're targeting, you know, kind of that, that 20, 20 to to 23 IRR is often what we're able to see. Um, Mind you, we're often doing that over really long timelines we're very bullish on uh, consolidation in assisted living and memory care. So think about mergers, acquisitions, and just sort of big plays kind of happening. Um, so the oldest baby boomer is 77. Uh, average age in assisted living varies about 83 to 87. So the people that are in assisted living are not baby boomers, really. I mean, you have some early onset and you have some people that are, you know, maybe weren't that healthy in their 70s that kind of make it. But in general, the avatar of the person in assisted living and memory care they're in their they're in their you know early to mid 80s, um, and so uh, because of that, um, if you think about it, you're an institutional player, um, you're going to wait until the wave is here before you start really jumping into the asset class, and, and so um, you know there really isn't a baby boomer play in assisted living and memory care right now in the baby boomer space. You're you're sort of focused on independent living or lifestyle yeah. communities, retirement communities, things like that, in which care necessarily isn't 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 provided. Um, so, you know, we like 10 year horizons on assisted living and memory care, mm-hmm. just because we think that's when the, the exit strategy and the multiples will be, um, at their peak. Right. right. So, um, I would say that assisted living is probably, um, you know, uh, 10 or 15 years behind apartments in terms of cap rate compression and in terms of consolidation, things like that. Interesting. So one question that I have, uh, that we heard a lot of, uh, during the beginning of the pandemic was how COVID affected properties and assisted living. So how has COVID affected your properties and what has changed over the past two years in your business? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's for, for us, it's really been primarily the secondary impacts of COVID rather than the primary impacts. Mm-hmm. Our model has uh, a built-in um, infection control advantage. So for example, we've been operating in Dallas since 2016. So we've been operating fully in, 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 uh, in Dallas all throughout the pandemic in Dallas, we've had one case of COVID uh, brought in uh, by a family to a resident. Mm-hmm. The resident did fine. We didn't have any internal transmission. So the whole pandemic in Dallas, we have one case of COVID, no resident deaths. 
uh, no resident hospitalizations even. And then in our Lake Charles operation, which started in August, so obviously it kind of came out in the middle of the pandemic, um, we only had two cases of COVID, no, no evidence of in-house transmission. So our model really lends itself very well um, to infection control. Um, there's very few operators that could boast those kind of numbers. We're very proud of that. But, you know, when you have things like Texas, for example, had a, you know, like a four or five month visitation ban, um, mm. that's going to impact, right? There's not, it's a very uncompelling story of like, hey, if you let your mom move in with us, maybe you can see her end of life because you can't visit her otherwise, right? So that yeah. really was the, the visitation ban was very difficult, um, especially on, you know, on, on dementia uh, residents because, you know, they didn't really understand, you know, some assisted living residents could kind of grasp why I'm, I'm kind of waving at my children through a window or on FaceTime, whereas dementia patients sort of struggle with that uh, pretty mightily. And, and then beyond all that, um, you know, so I guess it would kind of be like if you're in a restaurant business, you know, it's not necessarily that COVID, you know, obviously impacts the restaurant business and clearly impacts assisted living and memory care. But for us, it's really more the secondary impacts, right? The government response to, um, you know, uh, fears. So what we kind of see in Dallas is whenever the virus is raging, things kind of slow down and then there's this pent up demand. So we've had, we've actually had some of our busiest weeks and months ever in COVID. And we've also had some of our slowest weeks and months in COVID. It's been very polarizing. Um, so that's been kind of the experience that we've seen. I'm in another market that's maybe a little different politically and, um, it seems to not have any bearing with COVID. So in Dallas, mm. um, it yeah. seems like, you know, COVID cases sort of dictate people's kind of pausing, moving, right? You know, like we don't want movers coming in. We don't want this happening. Um, and then, you know, in other markets, um, it hasn't been a relation. So I think it, mm. it's going to vary a lot just because if you think about it, if it's really more for a lot of people, the secondary or tertiary impacts, you know, is it a blue state? Is it a red state? Is it a blue city? Is it a red city? You know, um, what types of measures are they taking? So I'm sure the experience in Florida is not the same in, as it is in California, as yeah. it is in New York, as it is in Texas. So that's really kind of been our experience. Mm. Um, it's been devastating on the industry. I think the more, the, the bigger impact on the industry has just been the impact that COVID has had as related to staffing, right? Very yeah. labor intensive business. And so I think, sta I think uh, you know, if you were to ask, you know, a hundred CEOs, they're more worried about staffing or COVID. I think all hundred of them would tell you they're more worried about staffing. Yeah. Um, even though COVID played a role in that, um, you know, I think that I think that staffing is 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 the greater challenge. Um, and you even started to see kind of the CDC kind of, um, you know, about uh, I think it was about two months ago or so. They they kind of changed the isolation guidelines from mm -hmm. ten days to five days. Yeah. It was really funny on Christmas Eve. They actually floated a version of that for healthcare workers only. And they cited staffing concerns as being one of the reasons. So even the mm -hmm. CDC kind of started to recognize like maybe it's more important for hospitals and, and long-term care facilities and other healthcare providers to have adequate staffing than just like bulletproof COVID oh. measures, right? Because, you know, there's some risk, right? So if there's a 98% chance that after five days that you can't transmit COVID, you know, following that guideline, well, that's still a 2% chance and with a very vulnerable population. But I think they realized that, that staffing was probably more dangerous because when you have short staffing, you have yeah. falls, you have mistakes, you have burnout, you have all the things that kind of come with that. So, you know, obviously I think shorting those isolation times uh, was important. Uh, ultimately uh, the CDC uh, came out with those guidelines for everyone, but initially they came out for healthcare workers. And I mm -hmm. think there was maybe some pushback or blowback from, from folks that maybe didn't really understand that. So yeah. just a little inside information about kind of how it, it kind of happened and went down in real time. Interesting. Uh, so I see, you know, for the, the business, um, I like it because it's recurring that you have. And I imagine there's not much turnover. It's, I think you would, I would imagine you have less people moving assistant living uh, 
locations, facilities versus moving apartments, right? Um, so other than that, what are the main benefits of investing in assisted living versus other businesses and or, you know, real estate asset class, I guess you would say? Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, I think, um, you know, look, there are different types, just like there are different types of apartments or different types of single family homes or different types of assisted living and memory care facilities. Um, the average stay in assisted living is about 37 months. Um, so okay. if you kind of get somebody that's very independent, they can kind of go through uh, a progression with you. But, um, you know, there's also companies that cater to people that, that have a lot of needs, right? So we kind of focus on people that we call high acuity, meaning that they have, um, they need a lot of TLC, they need a lot of attention. Um, and so they're a little bit, on average, a little bit sicker than maybe a traditional assisted living facility or, or, or um, and people move into memory care often very late in the process. So they might've been diagnosed seven or eight years ago, and, and now the symptoms have gotten to a place to where they need to do that. So, um, you know, you, it's very, it's not uncommon to have residents live with you five, six, seven years. You also have some residents that live with you for five, six, seven weeks, right? Because they move in very late. So I don't know that there's, I don't know that's necessarily advantage. Um, I, I think um, in general, I think the first thing that kind of comes to mind is I really think this should be something that you do as a mission or a calling. You know, I, I don't think, you know, I, I know I use the example, it's like buying an HVAC company. You know, I mean, I guess some people be like, look, my passion is cooling and heating people's homes. That could be true. But, you know, I think there's less of a moral or ethical case when you're, you know, taking yeah. care of someone, when you're giving them showers, when you're taking them to the restroom, when you're making sure they don't get bed sores, when you're getting, you're feeding them nutritious meals, when you're making sure they're engaged socially, you know, when you're making sure that they're getting engaged spiritually, that all those things, I think that's, that's a much more intimate service than, you know, even being a plumber or, or HVAC or whatever. So I think the, 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 the impact investing element, the sort of conscious capitalism element is certainly present there. Um, you know, it's definitely relationship sales, right? Not transactional. So you form these you know, deep bonds and relationships with families over time, and you're, you're working together in a partnership to help take care of mom or dad or their spouse. Um, you know, I think the thing that's nice about it is that, um, you know, it does have all the advantages of traditional real estate in terms of, you know, being able to use depreciation and other tax strategies to, to minimize um, tax liabilities, Um you, you have all, and then mostly I just think that because there's kind of a supply demand and balance of operators there are not enough people to operate um, assisted mm -hmm. living and memory care facilities that um, if you want to become a thought leader, uh, you know, if you, if you find this to be your calling, you can become a thought leader in this space in, in pretty short time. You know, it's, it's very, it's very uncommon for someone to be thought of as a thought leader in the apartment industry in five years. It's, it's uncommon, yeah. but it's, it's possible in assisted living. Um, and so if you have a thousand beds, you're probably a top 100 operator um, in assisted living and memory care. Um, you know, if you have a thousand doors and apartments, you're probably not a top 1000 operator. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's just a, it's just very different in terms of the size and the scope of, of, of what the business is. So I think there's quite a few advantages, but you know, the main thing is, is that I wanted to do something that I felt good about, um, you know, and I wanted to, to help people. And, um, you know, if I could figure out a way to earn a good living while taking care of people, I thought that would be, a, you know, a really beautiful uh, pairing of my belief in capitalism, but also the idea that, you know, we shouldn't, shouldn't be selfish all the time. We have to think of other people from time to time. So what are some common mistakes you see assisted living investors make other than not having a real calling, as you say, for helping people um, at this stage of their life? You mean like passive investors or do you mean like people that want to be the opposite? I would say either. I mean, whatever comes to mind, um, you know, whatever you see um, that people. Yeah, so, I mean, assisted living, investing. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer of bet on the jockey, not the horse. So people chase mm. project, chasing yeah. projects is the number one mistake. Um, you know, a great project with a mediocre operator is probably going to fail. 
Um, hmm. You know, a bad project with a great operator can often do very well. I'm in the process of exiting a deal right now that didn't go according to plan, but we're doubling investors' money. And I like to think that that's in large part because we, you know, did what it took. This property opened right at the very beginning of COVID, um, and um, you know, it was it was challenging. It, it wasn't that wasn't in the plan. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when it's hard to get the state out to come license you, and you've got all these sort of labor issues, and the property really wasn't conceived very well in COVID. Um, but we've been able to kind of battle through all that. And so, I think a lot of you know operators who weren't very good would probably fail in that spot. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of an example. So I think betting on the jockey is far more important than the horse. So focus on the operator, not the project is, is the first piece of advice. Um, the second thing is, is that um, I think the business is going to undergo a transition uh, with COVID kind of being the accelerant. Um, there's all kinds of trends that are happening in the industry. There's a lot of dinosaurs roaming the earth in assisted living and memory care. And, and, and COVID was maybe the first meteor impact that really impacted those people. Um, there's a lot of people with, with troubling balance sheets in the industry and that they don't really have a good philosophy on how to do things. And, and, and there's a lot of 70s, 80s, 90s build product that's incredibly obsolete in today's times. Um, there's a lot of you know, model, models of care that are incredibly obsolete, you know, bringing people to care for them and then saying, Hey, you caregiver, you take care of these 15 residents. That's a lot, you know, it's a lot to try to take care of 15 people. I mean, anybody on the show that's ever had a couple of kids can tell you take care of two kids, pretty complicated. Now multiply that times seven and a half and, and, and make them weigh 150 pounds on average. And, and you could imagine how hard it would be to be a caregiver. If you were assigned to take care of 15 people, you're not going to deliver a lot of care. You're just going to, you know, try to keep people from, you know, like a lot of times at night, you see these sort of dinosaur operators are like, look, we'll give you 20 residents. You take this whole hall and your goal is to not let anyone die. Well, that's not what people are paying for. They're paying for, they want, you know, I want to be changed. I want to be checked on. I want to, you know, have food brought to me. I want to have, you know, I want to be engaged. And so, um, you know, when you see that happen in the marketplace, um, this industry is very ripe for disruption. Um, maybe not from a technological perspective, but from a philosophical perspective. And so there's been a lot of small, to mid-sized operators that have found incredible success in this business and have gone head to head with the, the Goliaths in the industry, you know, the big, you know, just imagine if you opened a grocery store and you put out, put a Walmart out of business, right? Imagine that, that seems crazy. It's the other way around. Well, in our business, because it's so service focused and so people-based and so intimate, mm -hmm. it's not uncommon for a scrappy startup to, to, to cause problems for a Brookdale or cause problems for one of the, the big, uh, you know, big, uh, big, you know, top five senior housing providers. Very interesting. I had one question as well, just kind of circling back a little bit was from the time, how do you find a location? Cause you're, you're not buying anything that's existing. Okay. So you're, yeah. you're, you know, you're, you're, you're building it or you're taking over something that wasn't assistant living <laughs> making it. How are you choosing the market? And then how are you choosing how to uh, really, you know, uh, work on that business plan or like really uh, execute it and what to do with it? Yeah. So, I mean, some of the metrics are the same. So you, you obviously would love population growth. You'd love job growth. Um, not necessarily in the same reasons as you would the other things, because what happens a lot of times is let's say you live somewhere and you relocate for a job and then your mom or dad needs care. Uh, it's very likely you may have them move. To, you know, because someone's in assisted living, it doesn't necessarily matter all it can, but it doesn't necessarily matter if they're in the same neighborhood as they, they lived in yeah. because they may not have a lot of visitors. So usually the primary caregiver child or spouse mm. is within about 15 minutes of the facility. That's kind of a good rule of thumb. You can you can stretch that out if you have a unique product, but you know, ultimately, so if someone moves for a job, 
sometimes mom or dad or the spouse follows and then moves into the assisted living facility. So job growth is an important thing to look at. You obviously want, um, you know, you obviously want, uh, you know, older folks uh, in general, obviously. And then you obviously want, um, you know, folks that can afford certain services. So there's certain states where, you know, um, $7,500 a month assisted living is no big deal. Um, there's some places where that would be, you know, top of the market. So that that's kind of obviously a consideration. Right now, our strategy, we've kind of pivoted and just kind of realized that we're just sort of really fortunate to be based in DFW. You know, DFW has so many secondary and tertiary markets um, that, you know, we're, we're going to focus on building out the DFW uh, market and really establish what we kind of think of as kind of a city base or a regional powerhouse, you know, try to get to a thousand bed mark, you know, in the DFW area. And then, and then you know, ultimately, I think, when you got a thousand beds in Dallas, it makes a lot of sense for a private equity firm or someone to come yeah. in and say, look, we don't really understand your model. We want to acquire you, you know, keep the leadership team in place, you know, pay you well and, and you keep a legacy stake or something. So we, we think we'll probably be targeted for acquisition. So our strategy right now is secondary tertiary markets where we think there's a supply demand imbalance. So we're not building in Dallas, we're building in, you know, you know, Denton, we're building, you know, we're looking at opportunities and, you know, outside of Fort Worth and, you know, outside of, you know, Frisco or Prosper, you know, just McKinney, right? So these are places where, you know, there's incredible population growth. You know, a lot of these cities are, are, are you know, have 500,000, 800,000 people and they're, and they're 30 minutes away from Dallas. Um, as, a, as an MSA, I think Dallas, uh, DFW is an MSA is a third largest MSA or the fourth largest MSA in the country. It's wow. big, right? But it just goes forever, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's kind of, it's kind of not altogether dissimilar from LA. It's just a very spread out, you know, kind of, you know, interconnected system of highways. And so, you know, but neighborhoods have kind of their niches and things like that. So people in McKinney don't necessarily, you know, go to eat in Dallas and people in Dallas don't necessarily go to the movies in Fort Worth and, you know, things like that. So essentially these are, these are basically a very big MSA, with very um, local, you know, neighborhoods, communities, things like that. And so um, you kind of get down to the granular level, looking at zip codes and kind of seeing where there's kind of supply demand imbalance. And, you know, we'll let all the, uh, all the, all the people in New York, uh, you know, worry about building 20 story things in Dallas and we'll just be building our signature product in those secondary tertiary markets, you know, 45 minutes from the urban core. Very, very interesting. So how can our listeners learn more about you and your businesses? Yeah, probably the best place to go. I mean, obviously, if somebody happens to be in the, the Dallas area or the Lake Charles area, and they want to learn about some of their parents, they can go to the sageoak.com. So T-H-E-S-A-G-E-O-A-K.com. Um, and that's obviously our, that's going to be like a retail facing assisted living and memory care company. Um, you know, if they want to learn more about investing, um, then obviously that would go to the Goodhorn side of things. So they can go to Goodhorn Capital, um, G-O-O-D-H-O-R-N Capital C-A-P-T-I-T-A-L.com. So goodhorncapital.com. And uh, they can uh, they can learn more about uh, investing. And we've also set up a little free giveaway. Um, we can give them a copy of a book called The Sage Oak Story. So they go to Goodhorn Capital, name and email address. We'll, we'll send them a, a digital copy of The Sage Oak Story. And they can learn a little bit more about kind of the founding of the company and kind of why we do what we do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, looking forward to connecting with you in the near future and uh, have a great rest of your week. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was a fun show. Hi guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.